Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad, and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking to His kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power. Enjoy the message. This morning, we're going to be all over the Bible. We're going to be all over the place inside the Bible. So you can try and keep up. I know that Danny sometimes likes to try and show off and keep up. But if you're not wanting to try and turn to a million different places, we're going to end up in Genesis chapter 50. And so if you'd like to, to go to Genesis chapter 50 and, and be where we're going to end up, that, that's as good a place as any to go. We've started a sermon series at the beginning of January looking at who God is, who, who God the Father is, is to us. And, and it, uh, we talked about last week, it's not an exhaustive list. We cannot come to a place where we fully understand or fully comprehend God. But we're going to take eight weeks to do our best to at least lay a foundation for our understanding of who God is. And last week, we, we sort of began our look at the attributes of God by, by talking about a foundational one. And this, as we walk through what we're going to talk about this week, we'll begin to understand why last week it was so foundational that we talked about that God is good. We talked about that God, God is goodness. Goodness is God. To understand good is to understand God. And to understand God is to understand good. And so this morning, we're going to continue to walk down that road. And the, the characteristic of God that we're going to talk about this morning is actually one that, that is somewhat, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'd say controversial, but it's, it's something that sparks a lot of discussion and a lot of, of attempt to understand because it doesn't really, when, when we try to, to put all of the pieces that we know together, it's hard to, to reconcile and go, ah, that's how this works. This morning, what we're going to talk about is the sovereignty of God. We're going to talk about God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign. And the reason why that this can be contentious, why this can be difficult, is because it's really hard to understand God's sovereignty over all things and that humans have free will. And so if we have free will, then how is God sovereign? And if God's sovereign, then how do we have free will? But we have free will, but do we have free will? And it, goes, it can go back and forth as we try to understand how perhaps God is in control of everything that has ever existed and everything that will exist, but I'm free to make my own choices. Or am I? And, and so there's this tension that exists between how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see our place in, in the universe. And, and I'm not going to wade into all of that because I think it's, it's a fool's errand to try and understand sometimes the things that are ununderstandable, un other than to say, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, you have free will. And yes, somehow both of those things exist. And, and we can't necessarily wrestle to have a complete understanding of it, but, but it's, it is what it is. 
Now, when we talk about a word like sovereignty or sovereign, that's a mighty big Bible-y, theologically, theology-sounding kind of word. It's not a word that people use in regular conversation. I'm willing to bet, even though there's a lot of us here today, that less than five of you used the word sovereign in casual conversation this week. It's not, a word that, it's not a word that we use regularly in the regular context of our life. It's a word that we typically reserve for just this kind of conversation. That we don't say it to each other and, and we don't talk about that kind of word. So it's a word that definitely needs some unpacking. Well, sometimes a good Bible study starts with a dictionary. That sometimes in order to understand the theology and understand the Bible, sometimes we just got to look up what a word means. So what does sovereign mean? Sovereign as a noun means supreme ruler, especially a monarch. The, the, the figure of, of the figure, head of state, the, the top cheese, the, the, the very, very, very top, especially, the reason why it's especially a monarch is because monarchs rule until they die. There's not an election on a monarch. The, the king of Eng or the queen of England has been the queen for a very, very long time. And she doesn't stop being queen until she dies or until she decides she's not going to be queen anymore. But, but there's, there's nobody to challenge. There's not a, a, well, if things don't go right this year, maybe we'll have a new queen. As, and as an adjective, it means possessing, supreme, or ultimate power. What this means is, is, as we just sang, that God is above all things. That there's nothing that affects him other than himself. He calls the shots. He is the ultimate authority. He is without limits. He is absolutely free. No one tells him what to do. There are no competitors. And he doesn't need anyone's help. God is the lone, sole, soul, sovereign, authority, king, God is the unique source creator of all that there is, all that there was, and all that there ever will be. That is, as we talk about God and his sovereignty, what we are saying is that God exists apart from everything else, and everything else exists under God. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that because God is the author and creator of everything, of all life and all reality, and because he's all-knowing and all-powerful, because of all of those things, God is in absolute control of time and eternity. This is the, when we talk about God being sovereign, this is the picture that we have. That, that he is above all things, that he is the creator of all things, and that all things are controlled and find their source in him. This means that, that in life there are no accidents. It means that nothing happens that's random. That God is ultimately in control. That, that's what we, we say when we understand that God is sovereign. It means that God's not caught off guard. That, that as, we, as we do something, as something happens in our life, God is not blindsided, God is not confused, God doesn't need to, to rewind a little bit to catch up to find out what happened while he wasn't paying attention. But that God 
looks and God knows and God understands. And so when things happen in our life, it's not because God was absent. It's not because God was distant. It's not because God didn't care. It's not because God wasn't paying attention. But we understand that God will have a purpose and a reason for either the things he does in our lives or the things that he allows in our lives. And so what does scripture, or, and so how in scripture do we see God's sovereignty? How, how in scripture do, do we see this? Do we understand it? And I, I think that, that one of the ways, it's not the only way, but I think it's, it's, it's one of the best ways for us this morning to at least get a picture of what God would mean when God will talk about that he's sovereign is, is to look at what God would say about his sovereignty. That as God talks about this this characteristic of sovereignty about himself, what does he say in regards to this? And, and one of the ways that God shows us that he's sovereign in our lives is that he shows us that by his names. When God will speak about himself, he tells us things about himself through the names that he gives himself. That, that, that as, he go, as we go through scripture, he will, we will see all these places where God will call himself. He will say, I am this, I am that, I am this. And we discover this picture that in God describing himself, God is saying, I am sovereign. He will say that I am the Lord most high. That when you look at a pyramid of all that exists, I'm at the absolute tippy top. That I am the most high thing. Of all the things, I am Lord over everything else. I am the Lord most high. He will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means I'm the beginning and the end. I, I am where all things start and I'm where all things end. That in, we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And scripture will say that he is the author and the finisher. That he's, he's the beginning and he's the end. He is everything. When you start a list, it has to start with God and it ends with God. If you make a list of everything that exists, everything that has been, it starts with God and it ends with God. God will say that he is the king of kings and he will say, I am the Lord of lords. That means if you see a king, God is the king of that king. If you see a Lord... He is the Lord of the, it doesn't matter how much power, authority, whatever that people have given this position, God is saying, no matter your highest ranking official, I am above that. I have power over that. My, my authority exceeds the greatest authority that you can muster as people. He is the prime minister of prime ministers. He is the president of presidents. However you want to put that into our context, Whatever authority we have ascribed to people, God's authority is greater than that. God is saying that he does not, he, and he cannot fit with any other belief system, any other, other ism or thought process, any philosophy. God doesn't work with other gods. God doesn't work with other authorities. God cannot exist in an and state. That it cannot be this and God. It cannot be God and this. It's God or it's not. He is all of it. He is the absolute ruler and in control. The other thing that God directly references as, as understanding his sovereignty and his position in the universe and his position in our understanding is that God will talk about that he's sovereign through his prophecy. God reveals his sovereignty through the giving and fulfillment 
of prophecy. Now, you may not be aware of this, but what is being written, and, and, and so what, what's being written in the Bible and then the fulfillment of it, about one-third of your Bible is prophecy. About, about one-third of everything inside of your Bible is, is prophetic. One full third of your Bible is God speaking what is going to happen with specifics and with accuracy. And God uses this as a point to show his power and his sovereignty in the world. There's this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's Isaiah chapter 44. And it's one of my, my favorite because it's this moment where... God sort of, he, spe he speaks, but he speaks in kind of this different way, where you almost get just this quick little flash of, of a personality that God has that he doesn't show everywhere. But there's almost this like level of sarcasm that God deals with people with. And in, in Isaiah chapter 44, what's taking place is, is that well, the whole conversation is about, about idols and, and about other, other gods. And God sort of goes on this little tangent where he talks about how, how weird the idea of, of human-created religion and the idols are. And he'll talk about, I create trees. And then you go and you cut down trees. And some of the trees that you cut down, you, you burn in a fire, and some you use to build a house, and you use these trees for all kinds of things. But some of you, you take these trees, and you carve them into a shape of a whatever, you carve it in, and then you say, that's God. That I made the tree, and then you took the tree, and the top half of the tree you burned in a fire, and the, you, you used some of it to build your house, but then this last little bit you carved into a god, and you worshipped it. And, and God just has this moment of like, almost amazement, the way, the way that sometimes like we as, as adults might look at some of the things that our kids do, and go like, okay. I get, like, that's such a weird choice that you're making. And God sort of does this. But in, in the context, Isaiah is speaking, or God is speaking through Isaiah to the followers of other gods who've, who've essentially said to, to Isaiah, we've got Baal, we've got Moloch, we've got our own gods. What makes your God so special? And God's answer to that is that he essentially says, from ancient times... I've spoken through my prophets with flawless accuracy what's going to happen, where it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen. Tell them to tell their gods to do the same thing, and let's see what happens. God says, want to see what separates me from other gods? Look at what I've said and see that no one, nothing speaks the way that I do about what's to come. And because of that, because God, God has, they've, they've essentially said, what makes God different? How do we know that your God is special? 
And God says, let me show you that I am above all other gods. And what does he point to? He points to his prophecy. He points to his understanding. He, he, he points to the things that he's, he's, he has said that's going to take place and that they have. This is what God references. God shows in Scripture that through his names and through his prophecies that he is the sovereign and unique one. That he is the God above all gods. That, that even when God will give a prophecy about kingdoms and empires and rulers that are to come, every single one of those ultimately bowed their knee to God. It didn't matter how great the Assyrians were. When God said their time is up, their time was up. When God said the Babylonians' time was up, the Babylonians' time was up. When God said the Romans' time was up, it, their time was, that when God said sin's time was up, it was up. And so what does the sovereignty of God look like? How can, we, how can we sort of tangibly see what this looks like when it shows itself up in, in the world? And there's two ways that I want to do that this morning. But I think the first and most interesting are, are where we can sort of see the tying together of so many things over just a little quick shot is through the birth of his son, Jesus. On a base level, of course, Jesus' birth is supernatural. He was born of a virgin. That cannot happen without some sort of miraculous intervention. But when we look at the birth of Jesus, we can see on, on like this, this, these multiple levels, the level of sovereignty that God uses to lead his people, both in the big picture and, and with kingdoms and rulers. And that It says, it, we'll go to Luke chapter 2, and it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, as much as there is a ruler of the world, in Luke chapter 2, it's Caesar Augustus. That he is, he is the largest authority that mankind could possibly get behind. He ruled the Roman world. And so in those days, Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the world, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then we see the, this smaller picture of, of, so what does that mean? And it means that, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, who was pledged, or who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. All of these things happened so that God's word would be true. That, that his prophecy would be true. World powers and peasant couples' lives were intertwined so that God's word would be true. That there were hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, about the birth of Jesus. And all of these things needed to happen so that everything would be exactly the way that it needed to be. So Joseph, who is going to be God's fa or father, his, his, his mom, Mary, they're not in Bethlehem. So we need to get them down to Bethlehem. So I'm going to have the ruler of the entire world issue this proclamation that is going to affect hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all over the world, just so that we can make sure this happens just the way that it needs to. 
through Caesar and his decrees, everything that was prophesied about this baby was going to be exactly where and when it needed to be so that each one of these prophecies could be fulfilled. Mary was exactly as pregnant as she needed to be for that baby to be born when they got to Bethlehem. That it didn't happen three months early and she made it back home. That everything fell exactly into place on a world level and on a personal level. But then on top of that, as, as we look even deeper into the context of the story of Jesus' birth, and you look at the world at large, what we see is that Rome had become totally corrupt. The Greek philosophies at the time were becoming bankrupt. And at the same time as these things were taking place, for the first time ever, essentially since the Tower of Babel, there was a common language that was spoken throughout, throughout this, the, the known world at the time. Where Whatever your native language was, you also spoke Greek. And Rome had developed this thing where, where they had... That was called, it was called the Roman peace. They had a, have a more Latin-y sounding name to it, but the, the translation means peace. And what that means is it was as safe a time to travel as had ever existed inside the world at that point. Because Rome had these garrisons and they had people and they had lots of, base, like they had lots of places where you could go and they had soldiers out and so you could travel with relative safety comparatively. And Rome had not only made travel safer, but they had also made it easier to travel. You've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, because Rome built roads, and all roads led to Rome. This, this, was, how they, this was how part of how they developed and moved society forward, and how they, they ruled the way that they did, was they built roads all throughout the empire. So not only was travel easier, or not only was travel safer, travel was easier. So there's this peace that's, that's there that you can move around freely. There's spiritual and political need. There is safe and efficient travel. There is a common language that's spoken. It's the perfect time for the Messiah to come. So when Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, dies for the sins of all mankind, is raised from the dead, and ascends back into, the hev into heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes on all of his followers, and they take the message of the gospel, and they share it like wildfire. The message of Jesus spreads throughout the whole world. That it's not just that these events in Luke chapter 2 made sense, in terms of the context of all these prophecies were fulfilled. The world in itself was at a place where it was ready for this to take place. God just didn't coordinate these events. He coordinated history that the world would be ready. And so what happens is that Jesus dies and raised back to life, ascends into heaven, and the church begins. And within a couple hundred years... A couple generations, sorry, within a couple of generations, 50% of the Roman world are followers of Jesus. Because it's not just that Jesus came at the right time for all the prophecies to be fulfilled. Jesus came at the right time for his message to spread throughout the world. Now, the other way, the other place that I want to take a look at God's sovereignty, to, to get a picture of what it means even for us today, is going all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, you have so much. 
so many stories, so much theology, so many things that are the basis of everything. You have the story of the beginning of everything. You have the creator and his creation. You have the fall, the first sin of man. You have the flood, the judgment of that sin. You have a new humanity. You have God choosing his people, God choosing Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. And you have this family line that God sets up as his chosen people moving forward. Genesis is 50 chapters long. And the last 13 chapters of Genesis are all about one man's story. The, the last 13 chapters of this foundational book is the story of Joseph. 26% of the book that is the beginning of everything is the story of Joseph. And at least part of the reason that I think that it's like that is because this, the, the story of Joseph and his life brings together the picture of the sovereignty, the supremacy, and the, the totalness of God's power and control. It brings together with his goodness and his love and his kindness that we talked about last week and that message, that message with all of our human nature and how it works and, and we see the evil and the injustice that comes from that, but we see that because God is sovereign and in control, he can take all the evil that's purposed towards us and because he is in control, he can use it for God. Now, if you don't know the story of Joseph, it's a big one. It's 13 chapters, 26% of Genesis. But I will do my best to try and walk you through Joseph's story. Joseph is the youngest son of 12 sons. He's got lots of brothers, and he, and he, and he is his father's favorite. And neither his dad nor Joseph try to pretend otherwise. They both are very willing to, to display that he is my favorite, and, and Joseph is willing to say, I am his favorite. And, and so his brothers, they become jealous and frustrated, and his brothers get sick of it. So his brothers throw him in a pit to try and kill him. But it just so, it just so happens that as they've thrown him in this pit, there, there's a caravan that comes by. Now, a caravan would be something that, that they were, it, was, it was a caravan to, to buy people. That they were buying up people to sell into slavery. And Joseph's brothers look at the situation that they're in and say, sure, we've gotten rid of our annoying little brother, but have we gotten enough out of this? And they decide, no, no, they haven't. So they could let their brother be gone, and they could also make a little cash on the side. So, so they haul their brother out of the pit. Oh, thank God, you changed your mind. Oh, a good prank, guys, you really had me going there. And then they sell him into slavery. And he's gone. He, he is off to slavery, and, and it, 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 he ends up in Egypt. And his brothers, they go and tell his dad, they say, Dad, Joseph died. And, and so this is the new reality that they live in. Joseph, the annoying little brother, he's gone. Dad thinks he's dead. He loves us, or seemingly loves us a little bit more or something. But, but they've, they've accomplished their goal. Now, Joseph, he's sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar. He was sort of like the head of the secret service for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph goes to live in Potiphar's house. 
And Joseph does amazing things as he works for Potiphar. Everything that he's, he's touching, everything that he's put in charge of, it's successful. And so Potiphar keeps putting him in charge of more and more and more. And Joseph is becoming more and more and more successful. And by extension, so is Potiphar. And there's just more and more that's happening inside of this house, his business, everything. Joseph is being really, really successful. He's young and he's handsome. And Potiphar's wife begins to notice. And then really starts to notice. And, and begins to pursue Joseph. Begins to pursue a relationship with him. Begins to pursue him. But Joseph refuses her advances. He says, no, I wouldn't just be sinning against Potiphar. I'd be, be sinning against my God. I cannot do this. And so out of, out of frustration and embarrassment, Potiphar's wife goes to Potiphar and she accuses Joseph of everything he's resisted against. Everything he said no to, she said he did. And so Potiphar, furious, sends Joseph to jail. And so you have this, this moment where De, or jo Joseph is thrown into a pit. And then he's pulled back out of the pit. Oh, thank God. Nope, you're into slavery. Oh. Then he rises inside of Potiphar's house. And life is just becoming, wow, I can't believe the goodness and the graciousness of God on my life. Back to jail. And while he's in jail, he's joined by two people. We don't know much about them other than their jobs. One is a baker and one is a cupbearer. And while they're in prison with Joseph, they both have really weird dreams. And, and they wake up and, and they share their dreams with, with their cellmate Joseph. And Joseph interrupt, or interprets the dreams perfectly for them. He says, one guy... Good news, you're getting out of here. You're going back to your old position. Other guy, not so good. You die tomorrow. And what the baker and the cupbearer see is that he's exactly right. For one guy, he's, he's released and he's brought back into his old position. For the other guy, for the baker, the next day was a really bad day. But for the guy going back to his position, Joseph says to the cupbearer, he says, hey, remember me, will you? If, if you're ever in an opportunity to, to sort of talk about me and talk about this, just remember that, okay? And so the cupbearer, the one who lives, promises that he will remember him. And then he forgets about him. And years go by. And, and the cupbearer is now working for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has this really weird dream. And so all the guys that Pharaoh has around him for just such an occasion are trying to do their best to interpret the dream that he's given. And none of them are, it's not working. No one's getting it. No one is making sense. And suddenly the cupbearer, years later, he's, there was this guy that I was in jail with and he could interpret dreams. And so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, look, I'm not even going to tell you my dream." I want you to tell me what my dream was and then you to tell me what it means. And Joseph says, or Joseph tells him just what his dream was and what his dream meant. And Joseph tells him there's going to be this global abundance for seven years, but then there's going to be this global famine for seven years. So Pharaoh needs to be preparing for the famine in the abundance. And Pharaoh is so amazed by Joseph. He puts him in charge of the, the plan for these years for the whole country of Egypt. 
So from a pit to, to rescued from the pit to sold into slavery, rising in the home of Potiphar and life is getting good, back to jail for years. And now here he stands as the number two most powerful person in the most powerful country in the world. He's essentially the most power, or second most powerful person in the world. So Joseph works everything out, and so when the famine hits Egypt, Egypt is ready. While the rest of the world struggles, there is still food in Egypt. And included in the rest of the world that's struggling is Joseph's father and brothers. They don't have any food, but they know that Egypt does. And so they come to Egypt, and his brothers end up actually standing in front of Joseph. They don't realize it's Joseph, but Joseph realizes it's them. They wanted to kill him, but they thought, ah, we can get more than that. We can get just more than just our fulfillment. Let's, let's get some cash, too. And they sold him, and here they are, starving, standing before the brother that they were trying to get rid of. This, it's a long story with lots of details, but for the Coles Notes version we're doing here, ultimately, Joseph's response is that he forgives them. He cares for them. He loves them. He realizes that in all that pain and all that difficulty, it was bad, 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 kind of better, really bad. And then ultimately, here was Joseph. And Joseph realizes that in all that was going on, God was working in his life to save God's chosen people. God had made a commitment to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was Joseph's father. And here is Joseph second most powerful man in Egypt, with the opportunity to save God's chosen people from this famine. But this isn't where the story ends. Because eventually, Joseph's father dies. And, and his brothers become afraid. They haven't forgotten what they did to Joseph. They've lived in sort of this awkward peace that's taken place, where it's been sort of like, well, if you don't talk about it, we won't talk about it. And, and they've sort of just lived to, in, in this peace. But now Joseph's father has died. And they begin to be very fearful of their own lives. They say, Joseph hasn't done anything yet. But now dad's gone. What if now is the time that Joseph is going to exact his revenge on us? What if now is the time that he's going to get us? And this is where we finally come to Genesis chapter 50. Verses 19 to 21. It says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is the great hope that we have because God is sovereign. 
He is in control of all things. Nothing happens that's beyond his reach. Nothing happens that's beyond his control. And last week, we talked about how God is good. That God is not sovereign and impartial. God is not sovereign and wicked. God is sovereign and he is good. And so in our lives, we live with this hope because God is powerful and awesome and creator and all-knowing and because God is good and kind and a tender father. And in all of these things, he is sovereign, he is in control. And Joseph realizes this. And he says to his brothers, brothers, you may have started this. You may have began this road. You may have done this, but God saw what you did and he has used it to bring me here. Am I? I not in the place of God. What you did was wrong. You meant it for evil. But God in his sovereignty made it for good. The sovereignty of God in your life and my life means that for us as we follow God, means that whatever happens in our lives, the promises that have been broken, the people who have walked out, the raw deal that we've gotten at work, the things in our lives that other people have meant for evil, the terrible things that can happen to you, as we lean into him and we walk our way through pits, through our times of challenge, through our times of difficulty, our times of fear, our times of anxiety, of confusion, of pain, our tears, our sleepless nights, and our agony, that whatever has happened, as evil as the intent may be, God makes it into good. That whatever has happened in your life, no matter how evil and rotten and seemingly unredeemable it can be, the promise that we have in the sovereignty of God is that although it may have been intended for evil, God will make it into good. Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie and on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go. Miracle work, promise keep, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. I worship. You. We turn the lives around. You are here.
His name is above, his name is above depression. His name is above loneliness. Oh, his name is above disease. His name is above cancer. His name is above every other name. Jesus. Jesus. 